It's time to head out on the front porch on KFRM. Grab your favorite drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation on the front porch. Hi, this is Kyle Bauer with On the Front Porch. My guest today is David Sedlak. He is an author, but he is a Berkeley civil engineer in environmental and emerging solutions. He has written a book, Water for All. Well, that would be a nice dream, but uh, his pathway to California to work on their water problems is kind of interesting in the fact that, David, you grew up in an area where Water was a plenty. Sure did. I grew up outside of New York, uh, New York City, where uh, if there was ever a water issue, it was whether the water was polluted. It was not about the quantity. We had plenty of rainwater and plenty of water when we turned on the faucet. So it wasn't until I moved to California that I came to uh, appreciate just how important having enough water can be. So from, if you will, downstate New York, you went to upstate to Cornell to school. Your studies there was? Uh, I was in uh, the uh, natural resources program in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. And was your emphasis on water at that point, too? Or what were you thinking at that point in your life? Yeah, at that point, I was really interested in water, but it was still all about water pollution. I mean, that was way back in the... Uh, the 1980s when we were worried about things like uh, pesticides and PCBs and chemicals that got into people's drinking water and were uh, having impacts on, on wildlife and fish. And so that's what I thought I wanted to do when I was starting my career. It wasn't that much of a leap if you, uh, w- when you considered going to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. I mean, it's still a land with plenty of water. Plenty of water, Wisconsin, and and really uh, uh, an amazing experience uh, seeing and working on the Great Lakes and seeing these uh, tremendous bodies of fresh water and uh, and how they could be uh, useful. And at that point, my interest started to turn because between my undergraduate studies and graduate school, I had worked for a couple of years cleaning up hazardous waste sites around the country. And what I came to appreciate trying to clean up hazardous waste sites is that we really didn't have a lot of tools in our toolbox that could break down uh, the toxic chemicals that were sometimes left behind when uh, when industries uh, uh, used land for many years. So I went to graduate school and I wanted to figure out how to break down some of the toxic chemicals that were causing problems. So from there, did it lead you directly to Berkeley? No, I made made a side trip. Uh, my side trip was to uh, Zurich, Switzerland, uh, where there was a very uh, famous professor there who was one of the pioneers of using ozone to treat uh, water. And uh, I spent a couple of years there working with him and learning the ins and outs of ozone treatment. And then when it came time to come back to the U.S., uh, a job opened up in Berkeley, and I... Uh, I was kidding my wife. I said, I, I want uh, a, another rejection letter uh, to, to put up on the wall with all the others I have, so I might as well apply to Berkeley. It'll be a, a nice to put a pin on the map there. And uh, for some reason, they saw something in me and uh, asked me to come out and interview, and I, I got the job, and I've been here ever since. You know, I, 
I know a bit more about Davis because it is the land grant college of California and Berkeley. I think about uh, being inner city San Francisco and a very liberal uh, college only from the headlines. I don't really know very much about Berkeley. Uh, in your line of study, is that a very big department? Oh, well, first of all, I want to correct a, a, a misapprehension that a lot of people share with you. Actually, Berkeley is California's land-grant college, and uh, Davis was our experimental field station. And it wasn't until the 1960s that uh, Davis was split out as its own university, and a lot of the agriculture uh, departments moved out there. But officially, uh, we're actually the land-grant college, but Davis does most of the land-grant work now. They're where all the extension agents are based and, and so on. So, um so we have a long history at Berkeley. We were the first public university in California uh, formed under the, the land grants after the Civil War. And uh, it's always been a, uh, a real mecca for uh, not only uh, all of the you know, cultural phenomena that people associate with Berkeley, but the, the sciences and engineering. Like if your listeners watched the movie Oppenheimer this summer, uh, the first part of that movie takes place in Berkeley because Oppenheimer was a Berkeley professor. And, uh, and so we have a, uh, a, a parking area where the only way you get free parking is if you have a Nobel Prize. There's a little uh, NL sticker that goes on your parking permit, and it's the only way to get free parking on campus. So we're, <laughs> That's amazing. We're, an urban, we're, we're an urban campus. We're across the bay from San Francisco, so it's more like a suburban area, uh, not too many buildings higher than uh, than two or three stories, although more recently uh, we've got some taller ones. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a, something that maybe we, we call like a, a multiversity. That is, it's a large public university that has uh, not only uh, uh, an engineering and a, a science program, but it has humanities and it has uh, a law school, and it has a business school, and it has a public health school. So uh, it, it's really, you know, kind of in, in some ways one of the, the, the nation's jewels in the crown of the public education system, uh, and we're very proud of it. So it is uh, a liberal city. It's got this long liberal history, uh, and certainly uh, that's evident uh, just living in and around the area, and I, I think that's true of the whole San Francisco Bay Area. But um, it is a wonderful place to work if you're an engineer and you're interested in water because it's here in California where there are so many water problems and there's so much investment being made in trying to find ways to solve the problem. When you went there, were you expecting to work uh, almost entirely on water quality then or were you expecting to change gears into water quantity? Oh, I, I thought I was going to continue studying some of the water quality issues I've been studying, and uh, and I my my life was changed forever uh, when I got here. Uh, one of my neighbors down the hallway was a professor, a fellow named uh, David Jenkins, who was a very famous wastewater engineer, and he had told me that he was trying to help uh, a sewage treatment plant down in San Jose with the problem that they were having removing metals from their sewage. And, um, and I went down there and went to the sewage treatment plant. I hadn't been to a sewage treatment plant since I was, uh, I was in elementary school, and they took us there on a field trip. 
But um, uh, one of the things that I saw was that it was really surprising that the bacteria in the sewage treatment plant weren't able to remove the, the, the metals. And these were uh, metals like nickel and copper that were used to make computer hard drives because, of course, San Jose is in the middle of Silicon Valley. And in the 1990s, we were still manufacturing computer hard drives in Silicon Valley. And so a lot of that stuff was making its way to the sewage treatment plant. And uh, I figured out that the nickel wasn't, was passing through the treatment plant because it was associated with uh, a chemical that's commonly used in the hard drive manufacturing process, a chemical called uh, EDTA. And this is a chemical that you'll also find in your shampoo, and you'll find it in your uh, iced tea if you buy uh, store-bought iced tea, and you'll find it in mayonnaise. It's like this miracle chemical that's used as a preservative and as a way to keep metals from precipitating. And so that experience of discovering that there were chemicals in sewage that, even though they were around at low concentrations, could have big effects, turned on a light bulb uh, for me that uh, we were missing something when we thought about uh, chemicals in water and, and in sewage, that, that we just didn't know how to measure all these things, but they were probably there. And about a year after this experience, I saw a talk from a scientist uh, based in England who, was, who had discovered that uh, fish living in rivers outside of London uh, were being feminized. That is, the fish had been born male, and they were showing up with female reproductive organs and, and with eggs in, in them, and it puzzled them. And I put together, by, seeing, by this experience with the EDTA and wastewater, the idea that there could be chemicals in the wastewater that were responsible for this. And the one that stuck out in my mind was uh, the birth control pill, ethanylestradiol. That is, that this is something that people take uh, as a birth control pill, and it doesn't all get metabolized in the body. Some of it ends up in the urine. And so with that idea, we developed some ultra-sensitive measurement techniques, and we're able to find uh, ethanylestradiol at part per trillion levels in the sewage. And we were, it was kind of like a long detective story, but we found that that was causing the feminized fish. And that set off a kind of whole host of, uh, of research, a flurry of research around the world. And in that research, people discovered that there were human pharmaceuticals and, uh, and hormones and things like that in sewage at low levels, even after the treatment process. So there I was still working on water quality for uh, four or five years, and then someone from a water recycling plant in Southern California got in touch with me and asked about these chemicals and whether they might also be present after the water recycling process. I'm going to cut you off right there, David. We're going to go to a break. That's David Sedlak. He is a professor at Berkeley. And we're going to be talking water. We are talking water, and we're talking water quality for the most part at this point. But we're going to be talking about the new innovations that make water more available for people around the world. Join us after the break for more On the Front Welcome back to On the Front Porch. My guest today is David Sedlak. He is the author of Water for All, a book that has come out just recently 
and we're talking about emerging solutions to the water shortage and and we're talking about water pollutions from the past possibly water pollution right now and what the solutions for that water pollution is david i interrupted you as we went to a break uh, where you were talking about you found the uh, issues in the water and then you were going down to work with a sewage plant somewhere else in California. Yeah, so at that point, um, I got involved with not a sewage treatment plant, but a water recycling plant. This uh-huh. is a plant that takes the, the treated wastewater from a sewage treatment plant and uh, applies a technology called reverse osmosis to purify it further and then put it back into the drinking water aquifer, into the groundwater. And I began studying the chemicals that might make it through that treatment process and working with them on improving uh, their process. And that treatment plant is in a, a place called Orange County, which is just south of Los Angeles. It's where uh, we're, we're Disneyland. And a, a place called Orange County, which is just south of Los Angeles, it's where, uh, where, where Disneyland is located, the original Disneyland. And, uh, and what they, we discovered was it was possible to remove those chemicals and to make a very safe drinking water. And over time, that treatment plant has grown and grown and grown to a point where in that part of Orange County, which is kind of like the northern two-thirds of the county, and we're talking about uh, uh, you know eight or nine million people here, all of the treated wastewater uh, goes through this recycling process and goes back into the drinking water supply. And they're looking around at their neighbors and trying to convince them to, to share their wastewater with them because they're, they have such severe water shortages and have had such good experience with this water recycling process that, um, that they're coming to rely upon it more and more, especially as it gets drier and drier in Southern California. Well, right now, uh, the issue with being drier and drier isn't necessarily the amount that falls from the sky, but... It uh, may be a storage issue or, I mean, let's face it, California, everybody says all the problems they have, but it must be a pretty good place to live because your population keeps going up and up. Well, I guess that's because the jobs have been out there historically. Uh, Folks probably also want to take advantage of of the weather. But um, really what what we've seen, and and I'm just aware of this since I've moved here, I've been here uh, 32 years now, and it does seem like the weather's changed a little bit, but, you know, the average amount of precipitation in a typical year is about the same. What's changed a little bit is that it tends to be a little bit hotter and a little bit drier, and that means that less of the water that falls from the sky makes it to the reservoirs and that the trees and the crops need a little bit more water to grow. And that, that's a phenomena that the meteorologists and climatologists refer to as aridification. It's not just that uh, there's less water or longer drought. It's that it's warmer and drier and the growing season's a little bit longer. And that means that that much water returns to the sky uh, by way of evapotranspiration and evaporation. And so that, that's really one of the things that's driving this new uh, movement to find sources of water other than dams and reservoirs, because the dams and reservoirs empty out pretty quickly when we get a few dry years. Well, I think we'll use that to segue into the obvious thing. I mean, the full length of California, you have a big ocean, water, water all along there, but you can't drink it 
desalinification is is that the same as reverse osmosis? Uh, in most cases, it, it is. So there are several ways that people take salts out of seawater or desalinate it. Uh, the earliest approach was a brute force method that was essentially uh, distillation. You just boil the water and you capture the water vapor, and the water vapor uh, doesn't have salt in it. And that's the desalination plants that you might find in, in the Middle East in places like Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. The modern treatment technology for uh, taking salts out of seawater is desalination, and the way it's done uh, is with reverse osmosis. So reverse osmosis technology is really at the heart of uh, modern desalination plants that are used in California and Australia and Israel and uh, other parts of the world that have turned to that technology for uh, a drinking water supply. Is it highly energy consumptive because I've understood, well, I don't understand why it's so expensive. Can you explain that? <laughs> well, the, the old the old fashioned boiling approach, the, the, the real problem was it was an energy hog. So if you have to boil seawater uh, and, and then re recondense it, that, that is very energy intensive. And I guess if, if you're located in the Middle East and you have uh, lots and lots of uh, fossil fuels, that's one way to go. The modern seawater desalination plants uh, use about as much energy as the energy required to pump water up and over the mountain range outside of Los Angeles. So, you know, it's, it's not really about the energy anymore. It's, uh, it's about building and operating the treatment plant. But what we see is that the cost of desalinated seawater now is competitive with the cost of buying water from uh, from other cities or recycling water or even building dams and reservoirs. And so we've reached a point in California and in, in many cities around the world where desalination is the least expensive uh, way to get water for a city. It's another question whether you'd ever use it for agriculture because farmers are used to paying either nothing for their water or very, very small amounts for their water. People who live in cities are used to paying uh, 10 to 100 times as much for water. And so uh, desalination is uh, a pretty reasonable option. And, and so we're building those treatment plants. Uh, we not only have one north of San Diego in a town called Carlsbad, but there's a large desalination plant in Tampa, in Florida. So um, it certainly has arrived. And over time, the cost of building desalination plants keeps going down and down. So think about a little bit like uh, rooftop solar panels, where 20 or 30 years ago it was something that was a little bit of a novelty. But today someone looks at what it costs to put in a rooftop solar panel, and it might be cheaper in the long term than staying hooked up to the electricity grid. You know, your perception of costs, um, I've, that, I've had that same perpetu uh, perception of California water in general and specifically to your your farmers in that their water is practically free and they have very high output land that I mean very high gross per acre but through the years through the decades through the century they have been used to almost free water um, how often does the cost of water come into play with the decision uh, or is it the politics of water? Hey, it's easier to take it from the other guy. Or is it just the money to build the plant? I guess I'll just ask about the politics of water. 
Well, now we're getting away from water for cities, and water for cities is, is easy compared to water for agriculture in California. And so the real interesting question, you know, here in California, 80% of the water that's taken out of the environment goes to agriculture. Um, some of that water is essentially free because uh, there were water districts that came along uh, in the 19th and early 20th century and claimed the water rights. And so we have a form of water rights here in California that's called uh, prior appropriation. So if you, if you build the, the reservoir and claim the water, it's yours forever. And so there are some farmers who have essentially free water. Some farmers have access to uh, a large federal or a large state project. And others are, uh, are looking for water in the open market. And so there are cases where farmers during droughts are paying upward of uh, per acre foot for their water. So water is determining what gets grown in a lot of places. If you have water rights, you really are uh, trying to uh, practice what some farmers call more crop per drop, just grow as much as you can. So when you hear those stories about almond farms in California sucking up all the water, that really is just people realizing that if they have a limited amount of water, they had better grow crops that generate the most profit per acre or per, per uh, acre foot of water, and that's what they're doing. I'm sure you're aware of it, but I interviewed a fellow about five or six, seven, eight years ago that had a large agricultural um, ranch in the Central Valley that they were flooding those uh, orchards and uh, groves when the water was excess in order to percolate the water back into the ground, store it underground, uh, and it seemed like that was a great solution because the water were surplus at that time. Sure. That's something called flood-managed aquifer recharge. And uh, in the last eight years, it has taken off. I presume the farmer was from Terranova Farms where that got started. It um, was. That was that, who it was. Yeah, it was Don. Uh, I forget his last name. But um, it's a wonderful idea. And at first, people were a little concerned because they have perennial crops and they were worried that it would damage the root systems of the, of the orchards and vineyards uh, if, if the water was still there in the springtime when the plants came out of the dormancy. But it's working out pretty well. The, the hesitation or, or the fact of the matter is that uh, flood-managed aquifer recharge will help in some places, but it's not a silver bullet. And in part, that's because not everyone has the right soil characteristics and geology to infiltrate the water. And in part, it has to do with the plumbing of California. Uh, the, the Central Valley is set up for irrigation, but it's also set up to get floodwaters out of the valley uh, and into the ocean because that, that whole valley used to be an inland sea. And so uh, it's managed very much to move water from the, the south uh, to the north and where it rains tends to be in the north, and if you're going to practice this flood-managed aquifer recharge, you might have to get the, 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 the canals to flow in a different direction. That, that, is, a- that is David Sedlak. He is the author of the book, Water for All. We've been talking water problems, whether we're talking quality or quantity. Join us after the break for more as we pick uh, David Berkeley, uh, David Sedlak, Berkeley Civil Engineer's Brain. Welcome back to On the Front Porch. My guest today is David Sedlak. He is a civil engineer at Berkeley. He's written the book, 
Water for All, we've been talking about water quality issues, water quantity issues. He's in California, but he certainly is aware of the water issues around the world. We've been talking about a lot of the technologies, about how reverse osmosis has gotten gotten much, much less expensive and desalinification. One thing that occurred to me, though, David, uh, I know our town has reverse osmosis, and I know what we do with the waste that comes off of that. What is the normal thing that most con- uh, cities, countries, communities do with the waste that comes off of RO? Sure. So the process of reverse osmosis takes the water and turns it into two separate streams. One stream is uh, fresh water where the salts have been taken out, and the other stream is a salty brine. And that brine can be anywhere from uh, about two to ten times as salty as the original water was. So if you live in a place where the rivers um, are either large and can dilute the salts away, or if you live near the ocean, you just put that salty water in a pipe and you mix it out with a larger quantity of, uh, of water. And that's how seawater desalination plants work. They take the salty water and they just mix it back into the ocean. But if you live in an arid place where the rivers have very low flow or where there are no rivers at all, you need something to do with that, uh, with that salt because you can't just uh, put it out in the environment because salt can be toxic to uh, to, to fish, it can be bad for soil, and so it has to be disposed of in some way. In well, some places, oh, go on. Well, and the, when you say salts, there are a lot of things in that that are not what we would consider an edible salt. There are, there's a number of contaminants in that. Sure. So when we say, when we take this water and we concentrate all the salts that, that, that are there, um, some of these salts are like table salt, sodium chloride, but others are things that are uh, bad for plants. Like, for example, uh, boron can be quite toxic to plants. And others are, uh, are naturally occurring substances that can be toxic to people and to animals, like, for example, uh, arsenic or selenium. So this salt that we produce in the reverse osmosis process just can't be... Uh, put out in the environment safely under some conditions, especially when there's not a lot of dilution. So arid so, regions, how do they deal with that? Well, there, there are two, two main ways that, that historically people dealt with it. Uh, one was you injected it deep underground. And so this is the same way that we uh, get rid of a lot of the waste from petroleum uh, mining. And so people in, in your area might be used to that. Uh, but these deep injection wells uh, make it possible to dispose of the salt in a groundwater system that would never be pumped up to the surface. So, like, for example, when you go to the uh, southern half of Florida, that's what people do with their desalinated, uh, their brines from desalination. They just do deep injection. Um, in other places, they put the salty water out in a great big pond and a pond that's lined with a, a rubber liner and they let the sun and the heat evaporate the water away, and that leaves uh, a pile of uh, dry salt instead of uh, a concentrated brine. 
and and that process is uh, is is one that uh, is maybe like a last resort because then you're left with the salts and you have to dispose of them some way. And what way would that be disposed of in a landfill? Yeah, so one of the you know it surprised me when I learned about it, but. Uh, in many of the existing desalination processes that, that don't have a, a nearby river or a groundwater to, to inject the, the brine into, uh, the salts end up in the local municipal landfill. And I guess that's possible because it's not that common to have desalination these days. And so those salts just get lost in, in that larger uh, mass of trash and everything else that goes in the landfill. But if desalination becomes a lot more prevalent, we, we might not be able to continue to put salt in the landfill because at a certain point, too much salt in the landfill will affect the microbes that break down all of the waste going into the landfill. And it would also make the, 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 the leachate that comes out of the landfill from rainwater and things like that uh, a separate disposal problem. So the big one that everybody talks about in your part of the world, and we all see the headlines on, is Lake Mead and the Colorado River. And I cannot quote you the number of people that since Hoover Dam was built have populated that uh, watershed, if you will, and are relying on that water. Is that a system that is doomed to fail just because it wasn't ever designed for that much usage? Yeah, the Colorado River is is really a a bit of a puzzle for all of us living in the western half of the country. Um, There's a lot of water in the Colorado River. Um, There's less than there used to be because of this process of aridification that I described earlier. And so people have to learn how to, to share the water better. Right now, each of the states in the, the, that access the Colorado River have a set allocation, and they use that as they see fit. Um, in some cases, that's for irrigation of, uh, of alfalfa or cotton or some, some other crop that's not particularly high value but is important to the community that's come to rely upon it. And in some cases, that water is going to uh, western cities like Las Vegas or Los Angeles or Phoenix. And so what we're seeing is like a recognition that the status quo is no longer going to hold along the Colorado River, and we've got to come up with another way of, of sharing the water that's available to us. Again, wouldn't it be... Uh, the best way to ration it would be by price, just because then you would determine whether you're going to raise cotton or celery or, uh, if you will, strawberries uh, with that water. I, I guess, but I think it would be hard to tell a farmer that, that can't grow some of those high-value crops because the land they have, that, that, that it's all going to be price. Or if you just put it out on the open market, you know, get bought up by cities because, you know, building a housing development is always going to generate more economic activity than growing food. And so we also have to be aware of uh, the cultural aspects of taking water away from people. 
We have to be aware of the environmental aspects. Um, the Colorado River is an important uh, ecosystem because it's one of the wet places in the West. And increasingly, we also have to be aware that in the West, uh, it's not just uh, it's not just the Western states. Uh, it's tribes uh, in the Southwest that have water rights on the Colorado, and our neighbors in Mexico also have water rights in the Colorado. So it's it's a very complex puzzle that can't be solved simply by relying upon the market. Well, that's interesting because I kind of baited you into that. And I, because farmers, a lot of times um, do have the senior rights, but they wonder about the day when that senior right, first in time, first in right, so to speak, um, will be circumvented by the population in general. I guess I'm hearing between the lines, you don't see that happening anytime soon. I think one of the things people in my field look to, and I wrote about it uh, some in the book, is that a lot of our past systems might go out window. And I think that first time is forever. But I look to places like Australia and the Murray-Darling Basin, which is kind of the Colorado River of Australia, and the long drought that they had there about 15 years ago. And what happened was they got to a point where no one had any water and something really had to be done. And that was the time that the government reopened up some of those water rights questions and some of their historic assumptions about water rights uh, were changed. And so I think if change is ever coming to Western water rights, it will take uh, a decade of crisis uh, of, of, of farms and cities spring, uh, and realizing that uh, the status quo won't. At that point, we have to be ready for uh, something that makes more sense, and it's, it's going to have to be inherently political. It's going to have to balance not only the economic needs and the historic needs of people, but uh, cultural aspects of uh, maintaining communities that have come to rely upon those water sources. That is David Sedlak. He is the author of Water for All. We're going to be talking in the next segment about water for all the earth. Join us after the break for more on the front porch. Welcome back to On the Front Porch. My guest today is David Sedlak. He is a professor at Berkeley uh, in their civil engineering department. And he has written a book that just came out recently called Water for All. Spent his entire career looking at water quality and um, reusing water, finding it for cities and uh, dealing with that. David, I want to morph us a bit into the world picture. Uh, one of my philanthropies is rotary and uh, drilling wells around the world for areas where the women and children spend their entire waking day carrying water several miles every day. And where if we can put down a well in the middle of town, all of a sudden it frees up those people to do something productive, like go to school, uh, have an industry. So how much of the world has that issue of just not access to good water? Well, first of all, Kyle, I want to commend you for working with it. I, I think Rotary's done some tremendous things around the world uh, 
to provide water. Um, this is an issue that I, I think many of us are aware of because it's just so heartbreaking to see people uh, carrying water and, and wasting so much of their time and effort getting water and the water that they get might not even be safe. So the good news here is that this is a problem that is slowly being solved. Um, they're, they're currently estimated to be about uh, 800 million people on Earth who don't have access to what's referred to as an improved water supply and that have to carry water long distances and use a lot of time to get it. And it's estimated that if, if we keep doing what we've been doing, like the kind of good work that uh, that Rotary does and that uh, that UNICEF does and that, that organizations like the Gates Foundation have been doing, uh, we may get to a point where we, we start to solve that problem. So the international philanthropy that's gone into helping people drill wells and improve their water supplies is uh, wonderful. The other thing that's happening simultaneously, and it's easy to lose sight of this because so much of the news that we get is, is bad news about the world, is this economic miracle that's happened uh, over the past 50 years uh, that some people refer to as the great acceleration, that is the, the spread of, uh, of wealth around the world as uh, economic development uh, starts to have an impact. And so we see people raised out of poverty uh, around the world and, um, and able to access, the, to develop, uh, to become wealthy enough or to drill their own wells and to uh, build their own water supplies. And so between those two things, international development and uh, increasing wealth around the world, we're hopeful that in the next 30 years, this, this image of children carrying water over long distances to get uh, access will become a thing of the past. Um, there are two like places where I see... Uh, signs of, of even faster improvement being possible. Uh, one of them is people who live within cities but don't have access to water. So when you think about this question of, like, who, who is it that has to spend all this time and money getting, getting water, um, it's either people who live in slums in big cities or people who live in the countryside and can't afford to drill their own well or or don't have, uh, uh, don't live in a place that's conducive to it. In slums within big cities, the obvious answer is to connect people to the the water supply that surrounds them. But that's often been difficult because they can't afford to pay for the water. And so we're seeing kind of a, a change in attitude among uh, development agencies, groups like the the World Bank and others who finance water projects. And it's the recognition that water is a fundamental human right. So this is something that the United Nations uh, uh, stated and voted on many years ago, but it's really starting to be realized. Except this idea that if you're a citizen living in a country, uh, one of your fundamental human rights is to an adequate supply of safe water. And that allows governments uh, to allocate money for those purposes, and it it kind of creates a, an accounting system where people have to be able to uh, verify that they're providing access to water. 
So outside the United States, you can see many governments pay a lot of attention to the so-called sustainable development goals of the United Nations. And the sixth sustainable development goal uh, is about access to water. And this idea that there is a human right to water is really taking hold and leading to more investments, especially in cities. Um, that's one way in which we, we see uh, change coming. The other is when it comes to rural communities and their ability to uh, provide water to people. Historically, uh, the way that we've done that is, like you said, by either uh, providing folks with wells or, uh, or, or helping them uh, uh, by, by getting them access to, like, trucked water or piped water from long distances. And one of the things that's happened in the last decade or two is as uh, reverse osmosis, this technology that we talked about as being useful for seawater desalination or for, uh, for providing water supplies in inland cities has become cheaper, people in these rural communities are starting to use it to purify water that wouldn't otherwise be safe to drink. And they're setting up what are referred to as water kiosks, where within a, a, a rural community where there's a lot of poverty, uh, a, a local entrepreneur will come in and set up a reverse osmosis system and take pond water or water from a stream that would be unsafe to drink, and they make it uh, drinkable, and they sell it within the community at a cost that's much lower than what bottled water or water from a truck would cost. And so that, that is also another like, like ray of sunshine leading me to think that you know, there are new ways to even uh, ex expand upon the good work that Rotary and others have done. That kind of brings up the question, though, of emerging technologies in general. I mean, over the, you've, you've lived the last 40 years in the field. What will the next 40 years involve? What sort of things are on the cusp uh, that will change over the next 40 years? There are a few that I'm really excited about. One that is, is kind of, again, turning from the very poorest people in the world to, to some of the wealthier people in the world. Uh, buildings that have their own water systems, we're, we're seeing people starting to build what are referred to as net zero water buildings. So imagine uh, an apartment building that recycles the gutter and either captures rainwater or uses shallow groundwater around the foundations as a drinking water source. And um, here in San Francisco and in New York City and a few other places in the world, architects have started to experiment with buildings that have in-building water recycling systems. So basically, someone will use the water within the building, it will go down to the basement, and a little miniature uh, wastewater treatment plant with a very small footprint will treat that water in the basement, and it will get used in the building for uh, laundry washing, for cooling towers, for toilet flushing, and all kinds of things like that. And that can get used over and over again. And so what we've been trying is to create so-called uh, net zero water buildings because they can have a large impact on kind of future demand in growing cities, and they can also help us learn how to create technologies that will allow this idea to be moved out to rural communities. The place where 
a net zero water building has the greatest potential is in a rural community where they don't have wells. A lot of rainfall provides the kind of water supply that we're all used to for a modern life, somewhere on the order of 30 or 40 gallons per day of water. So that's one place I think that, that we should keep our eyes on in the future is the idea that uh, buildings will actually uh, provide and create their own water and allow people to live off much in the way that solar are allowing people to live in places where there aren't electricity lines. Um, there have been tremendous developments in some kind of far-out technologies like uh, atmospheric water harvesters that can pull moisture out of the air and, uh, and use it to provide uh, drinking water in remote locations. There are treatment technologies that, uh, that go beyond reverse osmosis to remove, uh, selectively remove uh, toxic chemicals, like maybe you've heard of PFAS, these chemicals that, uh, that, that are often uh, associated with, uh, uh, with, with uh, nonstick uh, materials and firefighting foams that have become a real issue nationally. Uh, we're developing all kinds of uh, specialized materials that can selectively remove lead or PFAS or pesticides from water without taking all the other salts out as well. And I think those will become cheaper in the near future as well. That is David Sedlak. He is the author of the book Water for All, which has just recently come out. He is a professor of civil engineering uh, at Berkeley University, University of California at Berkeley. Join us every day at this time for more On the Front Porch.